right, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll, we'll let as much time as possible go straight to Don. All right. Heavenly Father, bless this time together. Bless the words that they will honor you and glorify you. And Father, thank you for this precious man who has proclaimed your name, proclaimed your word uh, all of his life. So we praise you for what he's going to say today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Wow. Really good to be with you. And uh, pray, just pray that, that I'll go the right direction in everything. I did want to let you know about several things before I start. One is, uh, okay, I've got a Caleb t-shirt on, and by the, by the way, that, that says, just in case you wanted to know, the Lord bless you and keep you. But um, I wanted to let you know that we have a group, we take groups into Israel every year, Caleb Company does, and our next one will be April 19th through the 30th next year. And with an extension to Petra, which would take us to the 3rd of May. And, and any of you who are interested in stuff like that, you can go to our Caleb, Caleb website, which is calebcompany.org. And, uh, or if you would like to be on our mailing list, I do a, a good report. If you would just let me know, my, my email is just donfento at gmail.com. And I'll see that you get on our mailing list for things like that if you'd like to do that. Uh, just to let you know, also, we have... Uh, Lanny was asking me about it. We just sent, uh, actually we sent 13 people plus our staff, so I think there are about 18 maybe that uh, just left for Israel and points in the Middle East uh, yesterday and the day before. Uh, half of them went to Israel and are going to Egypt from there because we like to expose their people not to just to the Jewish people and the Jewish believers but also to the Arabs and Arab believers. And then the other half just left yesterday and went to northern Iraq, which is Kurdistan, and then they'll come by way of Jordan back to Israel. We have this training school every year. It's four months long, two, mon two months here, and then six weeks in Israel, and then they come back and do a debriefing. And their, their ages, we're mostly young people, uh, but the, we have two 18-year-olds, we have two Germans and, an, and one from the Netherlands that are part of us this year. And then the ages, the rest of them, mostly from, you know, 18 to 30, 33, something like that. But we have one 61-year-old woman who was in the military for 20 years. She's a part of it. So, uh, but anyway, just to let you know, if you know people that would be interested in that kind of thing, we just try, we, we, uh, we talk to them about intimacy with God, identity. They have to write their own identity statement. I think I said to you last week, everybody needs to write an identity statement of who you are in the Lord. Mine goes like this. I believe the word of God more than I believe my own emotions or feelings, and therefore I boldly declare that I'm becoming more like Jesus every day. That's a scripture. I nearly choked, but it's true. And uh, I'm righteous in his sight, and so I have a secure future. I don't dwell on the past, but I embrace everything God's doing in this generation, whatever my role is in it. I have a heart after God like David, and so I'm not going to depart from this life until God has accomplished everything he wants to do with me in this generation. I live in constant expectation and confidence that the kingdom of God is advancing all over the world and that Jewish people are coming to faith every single day. And I fear the Lord and I find great delight in his commands. That's Psalm 112. And so my children will be mighty in the land. Wealth and riches are in my house and I'll have no fear of bad news. Even in darkness, light dawns for the upright. 
And you know why this is all going to happen? Because Jesus not only has all authority in heaven, he has all authority on heaven, it, it, on the earth. And I'm one of his kids. So that's why. So that, I mean, but we, we encourage all of us to write things like that. My son wrote one. I tell him, are you saying it to yourself every day? My grandson, I've urged him. So anyway, that's, that's, a, that's an aside. But stuff like that. That's what we do. And then, of course, we challenge them because of love for Israel and so forth. So that's what our students do. And then, oh, and we also, from time to time, take ministry trips to Israel where they're not, they're not other kinds of trips. But anyway, you can find out all that kind of stuff on calebcompany.org. Okay, the other thing, yeah, I've got these books up here, and I, 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 I don't sell them because I want, I want people to have them. If you don't have any money, get them. If you want to make a donation to, to the book fund, do it to Caleb Company. But the, the real thrust of this book is the salvation of it I, because I, I believe I saw years ago that there are prophecies being fulfilled in our day regarding Israel coming to faith. In, right now it's time for it. I'll go to the, some of that today. And that their coming to faith it triggers a revival in the whole world. So that's what the, the background of this book is. This one was written in later... But this is based on that parable of wheat and weeds where the master said to the servant, don't rip up the weeds, you might rip up the wheat. Let both grow together till the harvest. And I saw in that that we're headed toward the harvest at the end of the age when righteousness, both righteousness and wickedness have ripened. I'm a West, West Texas farm kid. You don't harvest cotton when it looks like this or even when it looks like this, but when it looks like this. God's not going to harvest the earth until this wickedness is ripe, nor will he harvest righteousness until the righteousness is ripe. So the whole thrust of this book is that we're headed toward the most wicked generation in the history of mankind. This wickedness is ripening. And that's the bad news. Don't worry about it. You're headed, we're headed toward the most righteous generation in the history of mankind. And that's a part of who we are. So, all right. The, so before I get into the sheet that you're being handed... I just wanted to say uh, this. We're living in, I, I, the, the background of everything I'm saying is, we're living in a time when prophecy is being fulfilled that has lain dormant for centuries, lying there. These prophecies have been there, but they didn't start being fulfilled until our generation. The, when Israel... The, the, the early church was, of course, as we all know, totally Jewish. On the day of Pentecost, they were either Jewish proselytes, but they were totally Jewish. Not until Cornelius did the Gentiles come in. But what happened was, when so many Gentiles came in and the Romans, they began to turn against the Jewish people. And so by the time of Constantine in the four, early 4th century, Constantine called together a group of bishops in order to celebrate this, the resurrection of Jesus on a different day than on the biblical calendar. I mean, as I think I said to you last week, Jesus, whether you like it or not, Jesus was not raised from the dead on Easter morning. He was raised from the dead three days after Passover on the Feast of First Fruits. And, and I, I think I probably told you last week, I think there's evidence biblically that he was born during the Feast of Tabernacles, which, by the way, ends tomorrow night. So we're in that. But anyway, so here are the things that began to be fulfilled just in, in our generation. One, Israel is back in the land. After 18 or 19 centuries, they were expelled from the land. 
They were the, the Romans were taken over by the Byzantines, who were taken over the Ottoman Turks, who were, and, and, and ultimately, they, with the, the Byzantines till about the, the Romans till about the fourth century, the Ottoman Turks till about the 14th century, then they until the early 20th century, when the British took over, and then Israel became a nation, as you know, in 1948. And five Arab nations tried to defend them. They had almost no air force or anything, but they drove them back. But they didn't take Jerusalem until 1967. And then and when, again, nations surrounded them and wanted to wipe them into the sea, but they drove them back and took Jerusalem. So Jerusalem got into the hands of Israel for the first time in 1967, since the first time for centuries earlier. So, okay, prophecy being fulfilled in our day. Let me just say it, and then we'll get into this. Number one, Israel's back in the land. Number two, prophecy. Jewish people are coming to faith in our day. I read something the other day. I'm sorry I couldn't find it to get the source of it, that there are a million Jewish believers in Jesus today. I believe that. The third thing, there is, there is the revival among the nation. I believe the China revival, the South Korean revival, the Iranian revival all connects to Israel being back in the land because of some prophecies that Paul spoke in Romans the 11th chapter. And then the fourth thing that's happening is we're headed toward, as I mentioned, this ripening of wickedness and righteousness. And the, the next thing that's happening is, and I can't point to your scripture on this, but the church is coming alive to our Jewish roots of our faith and our need to love Israel, the host family, and to bless them. So that's part of Remember when I did Romans last week that the Jew, that we, we were supposed to make Israel jealous. Salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. That's Romans 11, 11. We didn't make them jealous. We persecuted them. We put them in, you know, Sheridan and Isabel confiscated their wealth we were the church has been the worst persecutors of the jews for 18 centuries that's changing thank god in our day romans 11 verses 30 to 32 says just as you gentiles were at one time disobedient so they too have now become and they and you received mercy as a result of their disobedience but they now have become disobedient so that they now can receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. In other words, our role through all the centuries was supposed to have been that we show mercy to the Jewish people and we make them jealous, but we didn't do it. And so we're, thank God those things are beginning to happen in our day. All right, now, you've got a sheet in front of you. Let me just let me just read it and uh, and 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 comment. I think. No, I mean, I want, let me let me skip down. Let me start off with with what you have here is eight, just because this was one of the first places that I began to see something that I still believe. Um, I may have mentioned this last week. I'm not sure, but the Jewish return would ultimately include a return to Jerusalem and would alert us to the nearness of the Lord's return. This happened in 1967 and was the beginning of the Jesus movement and the mass turning of Jewish believers to, to the faith. If you want to open your Bibles to Luke 21, there are four scriptures there, depending on what, how your Bible translates it, but Luke 21, 20, 
Jesus says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by the enemy, you'll know that her desolation is near. Okay, he must have said this in shortly before he died, early 30s. And the Romans, the Romans surrounded Jerusalem in 66 AD and destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. So Luke 21:20 was fulfilled in 70 AD. Everybody got it? Then skip down four verses. Luke 21:24 says that Jewish people will be scattered, that Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles, and the Jewish people will be scattered to the nations until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The Jewish and the Jewish people have been scattered to all the nations. They are Indian Jews, they are South American Jews, they are every nation in the world. They've been scattered to the nations until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. I believe the fullness of the Gentiles was in 1967. Let me just, let me just show you why, why I believe that. The early church, as you know, the early church was totally Jewish, okay? Not a single Gentile among them. But when Carnitas came in, you had a season of Jews and Gentiles living together. In Antioch, when the disciples were sent, when Paul and Barnabas were sent out, in, in, in Antioch 13, you had Jews and Gentiles living together. But then, as I already told you, when the Jewish people were run, I think I told you this last week about Romans 11, the Jewish people were exiled from Rome under Emperor Claudius in probably around 49, but they began to be brought back in when Romans was written, and so Paul is dealing with Jew and Gentile stuff. But the point is, the church became so Gentile that for 18 centuries, it was basically a Gentile church. There were a few scattered Jewish people who became, who were there that, uh, I've, I've got the name, for example, of Michael Solomon Alexander was a British rabbi in 1825, and he, con he, he became a believer in Jesus and became an Anglican bishop, and he's the one who built the Christ Church in Jerusalem, if you've been there, in 1849, because they expected Jewish people to come back, and they expected Jewish people to, come, to become believers. Benjamin Disraeli was another one, but so there were a few, pitiful few, but basically it was a Gentile church. And during that time, Jewish people who came to faith thought they were leaving their Jewishness behind. I mean, I think I, I may have told you that I was about to baptize a young Jewish man over at Belmont one day, and he said, well, I'm giving up my Jewishness today. And I said, hold on, no, you're not. You're just as Jewish when you come out of the waters of baptism as you were when you went in. It's your Messiah. You're being baptized into his name. But the church and the synagogue for 18 centuries agreed that when a Jew became a believer, he was no longer a Jew. And so all of their descendants became Gentiles. But something happened in 1967. When Israel took Jerusalem, the beginning of the Jesus movement, beginning of the charismatic movement, the hippies, Marty Wallman, pastor, rabbi for years, now his son is at the largest Messianic congregation in Baruch Hashem in Dallas. He was a hippie. He was a dropout. But Marlene, his either live-in girlfriend or wife at that time, returned to her Jewish, her, her Christian roots, and he was so disgusted 
that he was going to prove her wrong. So he, he, did, he did everything he could. He studied everything he could to prove to her that Jesus was this, not the Messiah. And he thought he had convinced himself. But when he, just, when he turned the last page and closed the book and thought he had convinced himself, the Lord spoke to him and said, but I am the Messiah. And Marty became a huge leader in the body of Christ. But so the point is, there were tens of thousands of Jewish people in 1967 that became believers. So now we're no longer living in a Gentile church period. We're living in a Jew-Gentile church period again. The Jews are back. And by the way, we're going to a time when the Jew, when yes, as Joseph, as uh, Joel Rosenfeld, I think, wrote the book, when a Jew rules the world. We're going back to a place when a Jew is going to rule the world. His name is Jesus. He's still Jewish. He's Jewish now. He was Jewish when he was here. He's Jewish when he's coming back. So anyway. All right. So, so okay. So Luke 21, 24. 28. Look at 28. 28 says, when you see these things beginning to take place, stand up and lift up your head because your redemption is near. To me, that says we're, we're in the end of the end times. And if you go down to verse 32, he even says, this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. It is within the realm of possibility that he means that people who saw Jerusalem taken by Gentiles in 1967, some of us may still be around. That's, I, I don't know. Maybe that's not what it means, but it can't be the generation that were there because they're long since gone. So anyway, that's, that's how I first got started into this whole thing because I, I saw it and I thought, wait a minute, we're living in different times than ever before because the Jews are back. So now, pick up your, pick up the sheet and let's sort of walk through it. God chose Abraham's family through Isaac and Jacob the reason I say that is because he, he continued to give the promise to Isaac and the promise to Jacob that through them, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Basically, that the Messiah was going to come to them. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, by the way, says that I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. But the two words for curse there, you don't get into the English, but it's two different Hebrew words. The first one is, if you lightly esteem them, I will curse you. I believe many people have been under a curse of God because they have lightly esteemed the Jewish people who were our host people. But the, but, and I could also name you pastors and people. And I personally believe that one of the reasons the United States is still under blessing is because our president has moved the embassy to Jerusalem. Now, I know he's made some moves that weren't, that weren't so good. I don't think we're good recently in regard to all that. But there is a blessing that rests on people. My friend out in Abilene, Texas, David McQueen, who pastors a church of probably 5,000 in Abilene, believes that one of the reasons he's under the blessing of God is because, that, because he understood and blesses and they take people and they, are, they have large Jewish ministry and he comes under that blessing. By the way, let me read you his, uh, see, the reason why I like this book better than I did when it was first published is because it's got all these addenda at the end. 
let me uh, let me read you what David wrote. For much of my Christian life, I was a functional replacement theologian. I believe the church had utterly replaced Israel in all the promises of God directed to the Jewish people now applied only to the church. In essence, God was finished with the Jewish people except for a handful who had come to faith in their Messiah. Interestingly, I'd never heard anyone teach this explicitly. It was assumed so deeply there was no need to teach it. In the, in the year 2000, after being called to the pastor to Albion, Texas, I called Don Pinto, asking to travel with him, desiring as a young pastor to gain wisdom from his years of pastoral leadership. He informed me that he was soon to be going to the annual meeting of the Messianic Jewish Alliance of America meeting in Pennsylvania and that I was free to join him. Although I had no information about the alliance, I decided to make the trip with Don, not then understanding his heart for Israel and the Jewish people. When I arrived at Don's home ready to accompany him on the trip, he handed me a manuscript copy of Your People Shall Be My People. The book was soon to be released by Gospelite Regal. It's now by Chosen, but Don suggested that I read some of the books so that I would know more about the groups we would be meeting at the conference. Ironically, I was young and brash enough, which sounds kinder than arrogant, to believe that Dr. Pinto wanted me to critique and, and give input on his book. So on the flight to Pennsylvania, I began reading, making editorial marks in the margin, though I myself had never written anything. When Don referenced Romans 11:12, I was stunned and perplexed. How could this man have so utterly misquoted scripture? I'd read Romans dozens of times, often in the original Greek. I knew the letter well, so I thought, and was confident that this verse was not a part of Paul's letter. I stood up to get my Bible and... and uh, out of the overhead bin so that I could show Don his error. He asked what I was doing, and I told him that I thought he had misquoted Paul. He smiled knowingly, assuring me that the manuscript had been well edited. I opened my Bible to Romans 11 and began to read it. It was as if I had never read this passage before. I knew immediately that was a divine moment of revelation um, that the Father was inviting me to join in with his purposes for the Jewish people and their connection to world revival as their eyes were opening to their Messiah. Don and I continued on a journey to the Alliance where I spent several days with Jewish believers and with their covenant Gentile partners. I returned to Abilene, shared my newfound revelation with my leadership, began to take groups of people to Israel and to become an advocate, an avid advocate for this newly resurrected community of Jewish, of Jewish believers in Jesus. And he believes that's one of the reasons why he's under such blessing. So, so anyway, that's the Romans 11. Now, the, the, the second thing I've, I've got here is the land promise was a part of God's plan. Now, I, you can look these passages up. I'm not going to take the time to read all of them. But God had told, when he, when he made the covenant with Abraham, if you remember that passage in, in Genesis, I think that is Genesis 17, he put Abraham to sleep after he had put those animals in there and split the animals. And what would normally happen when a covenant was being made is that two people would walk through that covenant, both committing that they would, they would die rather than break the covenant, okay? But when God made the covenant with Abraham, he put Abraham to sleep. In other words, God made a one-way covenant. Abraham didn't have anything to do with this. He was sleeping. 
So God said, this land belongs to you in perpetuity. There's a whole lot more land that belongs to Israel that's going to be Israel's one day. Because God said it's per, it is in perpetuity, it is forever your land. But, he said, if you're unfaithful to me, you're going to be exiled from your land. And so Israel was exiled for 18 centuries, but the promises lay there the whole time through all the centuries, and most of the church paid no attention to it and thought Israel would never be back in their land. But during the time of the Puritans, along about the 18th century, Sinzendorf in Moravia, I'm going to be there, by the way, in about a month, um, who had the 100-year prayer, prayer meeting that sent, sent uh, people all over the world in missions. But they began to realize that those promises, by the way, are still true, and that God is going to, he, he's going to bring Israel back. Yes, absolutely, yeah. In one of these books, okay, hold on a minute. Maybe it must be this one. Um, there is a, there's some quotes of some of these revivalists that, okay, I'm not, I'm not finding it. But anyway, but Charles Spurgeon and people like this begin to see this. Charles, Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon and I believe it was 1844, when he knew that Israel was going to come back to the land. So some of these people began to see that. But, okay, so I've got, God would close their eyes and harden their hearts, but they would return to the land. Skip down to number five. The Lord would ultimately bring Israel back from the nations into which they had been dispersed. Now, so, so open your Bibles if you want to, to that passage in Isaiah 43, verses 5 and 6. And here's what you're going to see. God says, I will bring you back from the east and west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. He's, he's bringing them from all four directions. Listen to me. This is the first time in the history of the world when Jewish people have come back from all four directions. When they came back from Egypt, they came from the south. When they came back from Babylon, they came from the east. Never before in history have they come from the west and the north. But when I have some friends, I had some friends, Shel Choberg was one of them, who was a Danish man, who went to Moscow in the 1980s with a group of people to pray, circling Red Square, declaring and even defying, you vile demon of the Soviet Union, you're holding back the Jewish people, release them to go back to their land because the Jewish people were not being allowed to go back. Today, there are one million plus Russian Jewish people who have returned to the land. Shel Schoberg and others knew that was going to happen. I have another friend, Kurt Landry, out in, out in uh, Oklahoma, who is, who is a Jewish man, and he was a part of a group that read Isaiah 60, verse 8, which says... Who are these flying along like clouds, like doves to their nests? Not what is this, who are these? And they said, oh, he wants to use airplanes to bring them back. So they went to Seattle and rented a 747, leased a 747, and took it to Moscow to bring Jewish people back. And then they read the next verse that says, on the ships of Tarshish they'll come. 
So they went to a ship magnate in Greece and wanted to lease a ship to bring the Jewish people back. And the guy said, we don't have one. And they said, yes, you do, because the Lord told us you did. Well, he said, the only ship we've got that you might could use is in Spain. Oh, that's the one we want, they said. You know why? Because Tarshish is thought to be Spain. And so all the, and not only that, so, so the Russian Jews come back. I'll say to the North, he said to the South, don't hold them back. That's the Ethiopian Jews. And in Operation Solomon, which was in 1991, Israel had a, had a few days when, Addis, when Ethiopia was allowing Jewish Ethiopian Jews to go back. So they got all these planes and took all the seats out of them to crowd as many Ethiopian Jews in there as they could possibly get. But there's a passage in Jeremiah 31.8. These, these scriptures are all in here somewhere. <laughs> there, there's a passage in 31 verse 8 that says that coming back to Israel will be pregnant women and women in labor. God's very precise. They counted all the Jewish people that were in one of the planes leaving Addis Ababa and there were over a thousand, but when they got to Ben-Gurion Airport, there were two more than they left with because two children had been born in flight. It, the, the, the scripture is so precise in all of this, but the, but the fact that the Jewish people are coming back in our generation. All right, and then I want to get to the next one here. Okay, verse uh, the sixth one here. After the return to the land, they will begin to return to the Lord. And I, I'm, I'm going to do two, Isaiah 6 and Hosea 3. And you can turn to them if you want to. But in Isaiah 6, here's what happens. In verse 8, I believe it is. Isaiah hears a voice saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, I'll go. Here, here am I. And God says, I'm paraphrasing, God says, go tell Israel that her eyes are going to be closed and her heart hardened. Now, I think Isaiah would have said, God, I wouldn't have volunteered if I'd known you were going to tell me to do that. But all we know that he says is, how long, Lord? How long is, are their eyes going to be closed? And God says, listen to me, he says, until the land is totally devastated, the houses are deserted, and the fields ruined. That's how long. Mark Twain, in his The Innocence Abroad, in 1867, he was in Israel, he described how totally desolate the land was. There were n the houses were deserted, the fields ruined. He said there was not a blade of green anywhere. He said he could go for he was on camel riding across and 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 he could go for hours and see nobody. Israel was totally devastated. But in the late 19th century, 1880 and so forth, they started returning to the land. In 1948, they became a nation. Remember, how long are their eyes going to be closed? Until the land is totally devastated. Hear me. The land is no longer devastated. Therefore, in Jesus' name, it is time for Jewish people to come to faith. That's why we've got a million Jewish people. But he didn't say a million. He said they. That's why I intend to stick around until the Lord brings all of them back. Because I believe that it's going to do it. Now I'll go to one more in Hosea the third chapter, verse four and five. Hosea says, Israel will have a king for many days. They haven't had one since 586 BC when Zedekiah was taken to Babylon and his eyes were put out. They will not have a sacrifice for many days. They haven't had a sacrifice since 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. Afterward, listen to me, 
Hosea 3, 4, and 5. Read it in your own book. Don't believe me unless it's in there. Afterward, they, the Jewish people, will return trembling to the Lord and his blessing in the last days. Jewish people will come to faith in the last days. Now, I don't, I don't say it bit, bit. <laughs> Surely I didn't tell you about this, this crazy man in, uh, in I mean, there, this is on the Internet. There's a guy in Israel that I have a friend who knows him and who wants me to meet him when I'm there in November. His name is Ariel Cohen Aloro. He's not a rabbi, but he's a Sasidic guy. You, I mean, if you, he's bearded. I mean, he's... Anyway, he has a rabbi. Okay. He has a rabbi who, has, who is a rabbi of rabbis who believes that Jesus' trial was illegal and that he needs to be retried. And this guy is an attorney, and he wants to be Jesus' defense attorney. And my friend asked him, well, do you, believe, do you believe he's the Messiah? And he said, I can't answer that until after the trial. But there's a group of rabbis, this is crazy, inside Israel that believe that Jesus' trial was illegal because it was held clandestinely at, at night and before a high holiday. And this guy, this is what it says on the Internet. This is the first paragraph. Ariel Cohen Aloro, a Jewish Hasidic Orthodox from Jerusalem, Israel, is one of the top Bible codes experts today. He recently undertook the crucial prophetic task to unveil Jesus, Yeshua, as the Jewish Messiah and to explain the main concepts of Christianity from a genuine 100% Jewish Orthodox perspective as a natural way to return him in kosher garments back to the Jewish establishment. Will there anything happen to that? I don't know, but I'm telling you, there's crazy stuff happening in our day, and the Jewish people are going to come back to the Lord because it's time for them to come. All right, the seventh, the seventh thing. I'm, I spoke this last week when I spoke Romans 11, but Romans 11, verses 12 and 15. Romans 11, 12 says... If their transgressions, and that's the thing that, that triggered David McQueen to write that, if their transgressions means riches for the world, because the nation as a whole did not receive him, and God went to the Gentiles, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? Fullness is going to come to the whole world when the Jewish people start coming back to faith. Verse 15, if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? In other words, Paul is prophesying that they are going to accept him, they are coming back, and it's going to release greater riches. That's why I'm saying, see, when China, when communism took over China, it was 1948 and all the missionaries were expelled. There were probably a million Chinese believers at that time. Fifty years later, when the Westerners could go in there, they expected to find almost a dead church because there had been so much persecution. But, they, but remember, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? But when the Westerners went in, they found a church estimated at that time to be 80 million. Now, Todd McDowell, now that works with me, have had some contact with some of the Chinese leaders in our day, and Todd said something about there being 140 million now, estimated, and one of the guys spoke, said, no, 
we now believe there are 180 million Chinese believers. Why today? Why not three or four generations ago? Because it's connected to the return of Israel. Why is South Korea have had the largest church in the world? A half million people at one point. I don't, haven't read anything about it lately. But why? And, then, and almost 40% believers in, Je in Jesus. Because the Jews are back. My, it may surprise you to know that the fastest growing church in the world today may just happen to be Iran. When all these people are crying death to Israel and death to America, the people inside Iran said, yes, but we're forced to do that. The young people won't get their grades if they don't go out and protest. And they tell us that the mosques are, are, are empty. And they're, they're, and they're, they're leaving Islam and going to, and, and going to Jesus. And they own no buildings, have no 5123s, own no property, no bank accounts, no centralized leadership, no denominational leading, and yet multiplying like crazy. When Muslims find out that they have been bought with Jewish blood prophesied by Jewish prophets in a Jewish Bible, something crazy happens. And, and then there's a book I'm, I've, that's written by Troy, oh well, Tom Doyle, Tom Doyle called Dreams and Visions. If you want to get it, get it because it's all about Muslims that are coming, that are having uh, these visions of Jesus and coming to faith. And there's one guy that I just want to mention, I read it again last night in his book. Has, they call him Hassan, but his name's not right. But Hassan was a believer in Jesus, living in Cairo, Egypt, doing, had studied Islam down up one side, down the other, in order to bring people to faith in Yeshua. He would even go, his passport still said Mecca, said Muslim, because he had converted. So he'd even go to Mecca while people were there in order to pray for people and to get in conversations about Jesus. But one morning he woke up two hours before the, the mosque prayers with a, with a masked man at his head, a got revolver in his head, and said, come go with me. He took him across Cairo. I'll make, the, I'll make it short. But anyway, put, finally took him up on top of a building, down a shaft into a room, and he, uh, on the way, Hassan just assumes that he's dying, and so he says, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. He got to the bottom of this, of this shaft with this room full. Ten Egyptian men were staring at him, and they started smiling, and the fellow who kidnapped him said, please forgive me. We knew this is the only way to kidnap you, to get you here without being endangering your life. We are all, there were 10 of them, we are all imams, and we've been having these dreams about Jesus, and we're now followers of, G of Christ, and we heard about you. We want you to teach us the Bible. Guys, that's what's happening in our generation. You see why I'm excited about this whole thing of, of moving toward righteous, the righteousness maturing as well as wickedness maturing. Okay, I've already really said it, but those who bless Abraham, this is number nine here, those who bless Abraham's descendants come under God's blessing, that's Genesis 12, and we are, look, the only city in the entire world that we are commanded to pray for is Israel, is Jerusalem. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We're told to do that in Psalms. And then in, in uh, Psalm 62, 
You who call upon the Lord, give yourselves no rest. Give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the whole world. Guys, I believe it is the responsibility of believers, of Gentile believers, to pray for the return of Israel, to pray for the Jewish people coming to faith. It's a part of what we're doing. And I believe some of us in this room we are going to live to see the day when the Jewish people from around the world. I, I, don't, I don't know if I did. Did I tell you how I coupled Hosea 3 with Ephesians 3.20? Did I say that to you last week? Maybe not because I was in Romans 11. But anyway, when I, when I read this passage of Hosea, that's what I'm living in right now, that they will return trembling to the Lord and his blessing in the last days. But I coupled it with Ephesians 3.20 that God will do more than we can imagine. So I said, oh, God, we've shut down imagination sometimes, but we need, we're supposed to have godly imagination. So I said, Lord, show me what it could look like. And here's what I saw. I saw a 13-year-old, no, a 16. I saw a 16-year-old kid sitting with his parents at breakfast, Jewish. And he said to his mom and dad, Mom, Dad, I had a really strange dream last night, and Jesus was in it. He said he was the Messiah. And his mom puts her hand over his arm and says, Son, I had the same dream. And the dad says, Well, maybe, maybe you all will believe this now. I didn't even know I could talk to you about it or not, but at 2 o'clock this morning, my room was filled with light. I mean, we're talking sunlight. And I guess you can believe this too now. There was an angel there, and he said, You've been wrong. He is the Messiah. He didn't even tell me who he was talking about, but I knew. we got to go to the rabbi. So they go to the rabbi and sit down, and as quick as they get seated, the rabbi says, you don't have to tell me why you've come. We've been wrong. And the first thing you know, this whole thing starts spreading. Is this what it's going to I don't know what's going to be, but it's going to happen. And, and so the first thing you know, it's spreading all over and makes the news media. All magazines and, and newspapers and radio, TV shows. Well, looks like the Jews finally decide Jesus is the Messiah. Look what's happening. And Jews go to churches and, and Christians go to synagogues. And, and then the next thing, I was in this big, big field of some kind. There was something happening here. I don't even know what was happening here. But over here, there were hundreds of people dancing the horror together, Jews and Gentiles, just blessing the Lord together. And over here on this side, there were people just on their faces before the Lord repenting because they didn't see this coming. And then what's going to happen is that, is that Zechariah 8, 23, it's going to happen that, that um, 10 people from the nations will grab hold of a Jew and say, tell us about him. We heard God's with you. And then we're going to become that one new man that Paul talks about in Ephesians 3, Jew and Gentile together. We're going to be united together as one and then I think the bride has made herself ready, and that's when Jesus is going to come. So anyway, I'm, I, you, you can have your own imagination and your own godly, but it is going to happen. Oh, that's, oh, and the, the only other place, aha, the last one I've got down here is, and you can read this one. Excuse me for not taking time to read these passages, but I just need to, I need to get this all out to you. And I'm, I'm as you can tell, I live in this. I've been living in this for, I don't know, uh, 
25 or, well, more than that, uh, yeah, 30 or 40 years I've been living in this, and it's just getting more heightened to me all the time. But uh, there's a passage over in in Isaiah, the 19th chapter, verses 19 through 25. And by the way, this is the reason, what I'm about to tell you is one of the reasons why our Caleb students are going to northern Iraq and to Egypt because they're going on the two ends of this highway in Isaiah 19. I was in northern Iraq earlier this year, and I've been in Egypt before. But here's what that passage says, that there is a highway between Egypt and Assyria. Well, Mosul was in northern Iraq, was uh, was ancient Nineveh. And Egypt, of course, and Egypt was much bigger than today's Egypt. There's a highway, and the Egyptians will go to Assyria, and the Assyrians to to Egypt, and they will worship the Lord together. And in that day, you know what? I've got to read this, because it's just too good. The last verses of that, of Isaiah 19. In that day, There will be a highway between Egypt and Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. In that day, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. This has never happened. It's going to happen. Look, we've got to live in these promises. These promises energize us. We've got to believe this stuff. Read it. This is a good book. Read it and believe it. It's never happened, so it's going to happen. And the, so in that day, Israel will be the third along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. Guys, we're living, and gals, we're living in the most exciting generation that it could ever be. I mean, I am... I. I used to kind of hope, wish that I could have been there when Jesus was here. No, I don't know where I would have been or which crowd I would have been in. I know which crowd I'm in now. I'm believing this. I'm seeing it happen. And that's why I'm energized. That's why I'm still going. That's why I still have passion. That's why I'm hungry for more. But I want you, I want you to join me. I want us all, I want the church to come alive to what's happening among the Jewish people and the nation. We're living in that day. So blessings, blessings. Hey, you know what I know you need to do, though? There's, a, there's only one blessing in the entire scripture that is personally worded by God himself. And he told Moses to give this blessing to Aaron and to bless all future generations of Israel with these words. And he said, when you do it, I will put my name on it. And since all of us in this room are grafted into, please understand that, we're grafted into Israel, Romans 11 still. We share in the blessings. We don't replace her. We share in the blessings. So it's ours. So we know it and sing it. The Lord bless you. He's the only one who can. The Lord and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you. And be gracious to you. Pour out grace. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. But now that you know what it says, God didn't speak it in English. I assume he spoke it in Hebrew because he's talking to Moses and Aaron. 
So as nearly as we know how, just let this roll across you. In the name of Jesus, the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. And the congregation said, Amen.